You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Kyle Logan, titled The Antidote, Thankfulness, a standalone sermon. For more info, visit creekside.org. Thankfulness is the core of that for me. And I want to begin to unpack three stories from the Bible. I shouldn't say stories, I should say accounts from Scripture that are very... They're very uh, illuminational, they're very uh, 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 revealing as to ways in which man can participate with God and either give thanks or not. Before I do that, um, I want to tell you a little story. It's a story about a dog. We all love dogs. This dog, you know, happened to be walking down the street and he came across a butcher shop where the butcher was there, it was in the morning, he had been preparing and uh, cutting meat and putting it out in the, the case and doing all sorts of different things. He was you know, he was warmed up. His wrist was warmed up, and he was getting things ready for the day. And the dog came into the shop, and of course, this is before it was such a big deal that animals weren't allowed in restaurants, um, and sat down. And the owner thought, well, that's curious. Not very strange. Uh, That's all right. That's not me, right? (laughs) It's funny because it's true. It's happened once. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, so anyway, see, the owner of this story, he goes, oh, wonderful, what a little dog, a cute little dog. And he didn't realize it, but he, he looked closer, and the dog had a, a coin purse in his mouth. He had some a coin purse in his mouth, and he said, well, what's up, buddy? Do you, do you want some food? And the dog said, Moo. okay, what do you want? Do you want? Do you want lamb? No response. Do you want pork? No response. Do you want chicken? Moo. Okay, well, you know, the chicken's... So it's such and such a pound. How, how much do you want? Do you want a pound? <laughs> okay, all right, well, I mean, so he cut it up, he wraps it, and he puts it down on the counter, a little joke, and he thought, oh, this dog's not going to... The dog drops the coin purse on the counter, and the guy goes, okay, and he opens the coin purse. Turns out there's exactly the amount of money needed, and he goes, well, I guess it's yours. So he slides the, the chicken over to him. The dog picks it up and carries it out. The owner immediately, he says, i got to lock up shop. I need to see where this dog is going because this is a phenomenon. i got to tell all my friends this is in- unbelievable and inconceivable. So he locks the shop, and he follows the dog at somewhat of a distance because he doesn't want to alert the dog to his presence. He sees the dog goes to this apartment complex, and he starts going up the stairs. So he follows him up the stairs. He gets to the floor where the dog stops, and the dog stands at a door, door number four. And the dog goes... He starts pawing at the door, trying to get in, pawing at the door. And the owner swings the door open. He goes, would you stop that? You know better. What's wrong with you? And the guy runs up because, of course, he's concerned for the dog, this brilliant dog. And he says, sir, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the smartest dog ever. He, he just came to my shop, and he bought chicken. And, and you wouldn't believe in the owner says, yeah, 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 no, no, I know, I know. He's not the smartest dog ever. It's the third time this week he forgot his keys. I'm going to continue to experiment with the length of that joke and the number of details I throw in. <laughs> but I, you see, the, the store owner had grown very accustomed to the intelligence of his dog. And so the value of this dog's intelligence hadn't changed, but his perception of that value did. He was upset that the dog forgot his keys, and quite frankly, I would be too. You know, oh, here's what I want to do. I want to unpack some scripture for you, and I want to talk about thankfulness in that light. And the first place that I'm going to go is 2 Kings chapter 20. So for those of you who have your Bibles, go ahead and break them out. 
go there. For those of you who have your phones with your Bible app, go ahead and break them out. Scroll there. Um, and uh, if you don't have your Bible, don't feel awkward. It doesn't matter. I'm going to read it to you. So here's the deal. King Hezekiah assumes the throne. And again, for those of you who are looking, it's 2 Kings chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 1. It's not going to be on the screens. King Hezekiah assumes the throne. And just so you know, there was this back-to-back-to-back-to-back reign of kings over Israel who either did it right or did it wrong. There was pretty much not a lot of guys in between. King Hezekiah did it right. His predecessor had allowed the Israelites to pick up all these foreign gods and fall in love with um, idols and, 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 and idol worship and, and false gods. But King Hezekiah, he did not. He tore down the idols. Not only did he tear down the idols, he tore down the high places, meaning the hills on which these idols were uh, erected. He tore them down and he made sure nobody could worship there anymore. He was, he was righteously and fervently following God and leading people to God. So as a king, you can understand that he was favored of God. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to highlight and focus on a latter point of King Hezekiah's career. So I'm picking it up in chapter 20, verse 1, and it says this. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. This is towards the end of his career as king. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die and you will not recover. Wow. Well, first off, there's something we need to notice. Uh, this is the word of the Lord coming to him. And um, not a lot of us get a forewarning like this, do we? I mean, there, there, this in and of itself is, is a bit of a blessing. And I know we could all say, oh, well, God could just heal him. I mean, why didn't he just heal him? And that's not the point. The point is that God comes to prepare him as king because of his righteousness and his favor and say, hey, get your house in order. Huge blessing. Many of us don't get to say goodbye to our loved ones. King Hezekiah had that opportunity. But here's what happened. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. He, he, t- he looked away from Isaiah, turned his face to the wall, and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion, and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I want you to take a very careful note. This is very important. It's going to come back later. His emotional state when he hears from Isaiah. He hears these words. Your, your, your time's come. Your reign is coming to an end. He weeps bitterly because of the misfortune that's being visited on him, okay? This misfortune that's natural to all of us. Death comes to all of us. And he just says, okay, well, he weeps bitterly. So Isaiah, as he's exiting the castle, this is the, the king's castle, it says that before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back, tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So God chooses to give him 15 more years. This is an amazing blessing. Isaiah says, prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil and he recovered. So obviously his sickness had an external manifestation on his body and that's the area that they chose to address. So Isaiah says, okay, prepare a poultice of figs. They do, they dress his wound 
And so Hezekiah asks Isaiah, well, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now? Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you, that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? He's talking about a shadow that they can both see. It's a simple matter for a shadow to go forward 10 steps, said Hezekiah, rather have it go back 10 steps. Then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord and the Lord made the shadow go back the 10 steps it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So they're watching this stairway from where they sit. And this miraculous happening occurs. He literally says, okay, well, but how, but how do I know? Because Isaiah, of course, is the mouthpiece of the Lord. He says, well, how do I know? I need a sign from the Lord. And Isaiah says, okay, well, he's going to cause the shadow not to move in accordance with what the sun is doing. Should it go forward or back 10 steps? Up to you. Chooses back and it does so. So he has, he has the knowledge that he's going to be healed. Well, in a short time later, I want you to follow the story and see what happens. This is very important. The Bible gives us snapshots of different kings in their careers, especially in a book like this. Chapter uh, 20, verse 12, immediately jumps ahead a bit in time to a new snapshot, and it says this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in store, his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. You guys all know who Babylon is, right? This is where the story goes south, Babylon's big bad kingdom. And for those of us who have, have, have a little familiar with scripture, we know Babylon inevitably enslaves Israel. Well, here's what happens. Isaiah the prophet returns, and he goes to the king. He goes to Hezekiah, and he says, what did those men say, and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Everybody know what a eunuch is? It's not a good future. I'd rather be a prince in Israel than a eunuch in Babylon. Here's his reaction. You heard his reaction earlier. He weeps bitterly at the, at the word of the Lord that talks about his fatality and his life ending. Here's his reaction. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? The chapter goes on to detail some of his other accomplishments as king. Do you see this huge difference? God tells him, hey, you know, you're not going to recover from this sickness. You're going to pass. He weeps bitterly. God tells him, your sons are going to be enslaved, and the entirety of your nation will be handed over to a foreign king. And he goes, okay, that's good, but not in my lifetime, right? I don't know about you, but as king or leader or whatever, emperor, president, whoever you are, I would be way more concerned about my life naturally, uh, about people being enslaved than my life naturally coming to an end. 
And yet his only emotional response is that he weeps bitterly when it's his fate on the line, not the fate of his very flesh and blood. We're not talking about people in his kingdom whom he doesn't know. We're talking about his future sons going into slavery. When we, when we first visit this chapter, we go, oh, what a nice story. God chooses to give him this life. And what does he do with it? He chooses not to be grateful with the life he's already led. He chooses not to accept the word of the Lord, which, by the way, is final in that time. If a prophet came to you and said, hey, it's over, you're done. You were done. But he doesn't accept the word of the Lord, and he simply he begs for more, and in turn, he destines his sons for slavery. There's not, there's not room for gratitude in that response. Friend, how many of us have been given what we need? We've been given maybe even what was fair. I mean, life's not fair, but a lot of us have been given what was fair. Did we appreciate it? I don't know. Hezekiah didn't. He had this great reign as king, becomes ill, and it was at the point of death. But he doesn't accept it. He says, no, it's not enough. Lord, please, please, give me more, give me more, give me more. And with what the Lord gives him, he destines his nation for destruction and slavery. There's a perspective uh, shift here. You see, thankfulness does not dismiss pain and difficulty, but it purifies us. It keeps us from being poisoned by it. Hezekiah received the word of the Lord, but instead of submitting to it, thankful for the warning, thankful for the, okay, I'll get my house in order, which is, by the way, where that phrase comes from. When somebody says, hey, you need to get your house in order, you need to begin taking care of business, it comes directly from this. Instead of saying, thanks for the warning, Lord, I appreciate it, he doesn't finish strong. He doesn't receive death with honor and grace. Instead, he destines his sons for misfortune by being foolish and braggadocious with the time he has left. He wants to show off his toys, and in doing so, brings calamity. Then when he receives the word of the Lord again, it shows you exactly where his priorities are, and those are simply for himself and where he is not for his children or the future of his nation. Guys, what might have happened if Hezekiah had instead shown gratitude to the Lord for his forewarning and said, yes, Lord, I'll prepare my house and thank you, God, for my kingship, for all that I've had. What might have been different? I don't ever want to be like Hezekiah, but I know that there are times in life where God says, that's good, that's it, that's enough. And I go, well, I want more though, God. I want more. Can I have more? But what am I going to do with more? What am I going to do with more? It doesn't matter how many raises Pastor Terry gives me if I don't manage myself well. It doesn't matter how many times my wife tells me that she loves me. If I don't ration and care and, and invest in that love, it doesn't matter. More it does not matter. It's what we do with what we have that matters. It's whether or not we're grateful with what we have that matters. Mm. I used this example, first service. God gave us a, a healthy son about five months ago. And uh, this is so true. I remember thinking, oh, man. I wish he was a little more independent, though, like my other one. <laughs> How Hezekiah is that? Lord, thanks for the healthy baby, but ah, I wish he was quieter. Just a, just a, little, bit, just a little bit piercing sometimes. If you could 
tweak that back. That's the story from my life. I got to practice thankfulness there. Here's another story. I'm moving on now to another account of the Bible. I call this one the, the grumbling people. Let me tell you a little story. Kent Crockett wrote a great work. It's called I Once Was Blind, But Now I Squint. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Here's the story he tells in that. He says, little Jenny sat down to eat dinner with her family. She realized they were having leftovers, and she looked at them and said, hey, wait, wait a minute. We thanked God for this last night. <laughs> the moral of the story is just because God, you thanked him once for something doesn't mean you can't thank him again. You see, the people of Israel are an embodiment a little bit of this story. They've been broken free of the shackles of Egypt, and it's like two months and 15 days, okay? Their, 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 their shackle tan lines haven't even faded. I mean, that's how recent it is. And they're, they're in the desert. And uh, let me, I'm sorry, let me give you the verse because I know it's not going to be up there. This is going to be from Exodus chapter 16. <clears throat> the people of Israel, they've seen the plagues ravage Egypt that set them free. They've walked on dry ground when the ocean was split for their salvation. And here's another miracle that comes on account of some grumbling. You see, in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Two months and 15 days. I'm sorry, is that a month and 15 days? 15th day of the second month. Yeah, it's a month and 15 days. It's even shorter than I first sold you on. And here's what they said. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire, entire assembly to death. Oh my gosh, how dramatic. See, here's the thing about being a slave. Your slavers have an investment in you. And so they feed you to keep you from dying. When you're not a slave anymore, you have to feed yourself something they didn't really care to do. And so what did they say? They even got a little sarcastic and said, oh man, if only he'd struck us down in Egypt with the rest of those guys. What? They witnessed the plagues befall Egypt. Horrible stuff. And they're like, yeah, gosh, wish I was one of those guys because I am so hungry right now. I mean, it's unbelievable. So this is their attitude. Here's what the Lord says to Moses. I will rain down bread and heaven bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether or not they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and it is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days so that they wouldn't gather on their Sabbath. So it goes on, and, and, and this, the, the account continues. But what I want us to focus on is this. It's simply this. They were so ungrateful for their freedom that they allowed the fact that new work came with it to spoil it. Because now they didn't have slavers who were over them whipping them, but also feeding them. And they, they're upset over this. See, friends, in America, we kind of have the same problem. We always kind of forget how hard uh, Egypt or like our life before Christ or all those things can, can be. And we kind of like glamorize it a little bit and glorify it. And we're like, ah, I remember when I was a sinner. <laughs> I did things that you wouldn't imagine. Oh, boy. I'd probably be a lot richer now, as a matter of fact. Oh, gosh, yeah. 
Yep, boy, that was not bad. You know, and we begin to lose frame of reference on what it really was like back then. Because, by the way, for those of you who have received Christ, there's a reason you did it. It wasn't that great. And whether it's recent or not, you know, it doesn't matter. This, this really does apply to all of us in this room today, whether you know God or not. There's this sense of internal uh, friction that we have to constantly self-evaluate and realize, are we thankful or not for where we're at? You see, the, the, at this point in time, they didn't have health insurance. They didn't have a sterilized Band-Aid kit that they got from the dollar store in their bathrooms. They didn't have plumbing. They didn't have any of those things. They didn't have a hospital nearby. There were no emergency rooms they were dependent on God in a much more dramatic way, a much stark, more stark life and death way. And so for, for them to be really, you know, grumbling about food when they finally had the freedom to catch it is a difficult thing. You guys, we have all received food. The fact that you guys are here means the Holy Spirit is ministering to you. It means you've been called to this place, whether or not you've received Jesus or not. You know, you're on a, you are on this journey. And, and, and God is at work in you. There's evidence of that in this assembly. But one of the most important things is this. I, I, I know a lot of us, we experience God's grace, but then we don't really experience it. We're not incredibly joyful about it. And I think it's because of this. We don't know what it's like to need God like they might have in that period in time. The one way you and I get to experience God's grace is through his restoration of, of, of our righteousness, right? Because we're all sinners. Well, some of us, we're like, oh, totally, I'm a sinner. Yes, grace, awesome. We never really own the fact that we were a sinner. We never really experience it unless you're like me and you've fallen flat on your face a million times and you're very, very familiar with the fact that you're super messed up. A lot of us are just like, totally, I need grace. We don't believe it when we say it. Oh, I'm a sinner. Ah, I need grace. Yes, absolutely. Guys, then we experience a really cheap joy, a fleeting grace. Because we didn't, we didn't really take stock. We didn't really assess ourselves and realize, whoa, I got some wicked things at work in me. The depth of joy that comes from, from realizing that and then putting it aside for the righteousness of Jesus, that, that is the true manna. That is what you and I get to take part in. Maybe you're there, maybe you're not. It, it, it's okay. I'm, there's, I'm not assigning a value to where you're at with your journey with God. What I am telling you is in order to truly taste that really good sustenance of heaven, be willing to accept the fact that you're hungry first. And then be grateful when God feeds you. I know Egypt has its goodies. And, you know, we kind of get this, well, what has Jesus done for me lately? I don't get butterflies when he calls anymore thing going on. It happens to us. It really does. It really, really does. And that's what fellowship is for. We, we kind of keep each other tethered when we're not feeling it. But listen, friends, I used to be so entitled. I really struggled with entitlement. Oh, God, why did so-and-so get that and I didn't? Oh, man, I really, I, I wanted that for my birthday and they got it on their birthday. And I grew up with this sense of entitlement. I inherited it from, from family and it was just a very common thing for us. We had a deep sense of entitlement in our family. Do you know when all that changed for me? A lot of that changed when I realized just how much God was giving me. And then I realized this one very, very, very important thing. Friend, if the only thing God ever gave you was the redemption of his work on the cross, that would be enough. You don't need more than that. 
if the only good thing God ever does for me is forgive me through Jesus' sacrifice, that is enough. It doesn't matter what God gives Nat. It doesn't matter what God chooses to bless Margaret with. It doesn't matter what other people have. If the only thing Jesus ever did for you was die on the cross, that's enough. That's enough for me. And when I take stock of that, I stop keeping score of what other people have. If the cross was all he ever did for me, I still have a lot of reasons to be thankful. Here's the last account I want to tell you about. It's, it's, I call this one the Anomaly Man. Kind of like the Monopoly Man. The Anomaly Man. This is a story you might have heard. We've, we've covered it a little bit before fairly recently. It's, it's of the story of these ten lepers who see Jesus on the road. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, if, if you want to look at it in detail, it's Luke 17, chapter, uh, Luke's, uh, chapter 17, verse 11. But I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to kind of highlight it for you guys. These 10 lepers are on the road, and they see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and they say, Jesus, have mercy on us. Master, have pity on us, is what they say. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Do you know why they yelled? Pastor Terry's unpacked this before, but let me, let me just re, let me revisit it. They yelled because they had to. They weren't allowed to come within a certain distance of people. See, they had this infectious skin disease called leprosy that literally they would have, they would have had fingers and toes falling off. They would have had appendages sort of hanging on. Sometimes it took 30 years for a person to die of leprosy, and in the meantime, they had to suffer and trod through all of this. And if you're considering going out for breakfast after this, I apologize. Don't think about this. But think about it right now in the context of this sermon. We forget, we forget, because this, this doesn't really affect us right now in America. By the way, it is out, out there, elsewhere in the world. There are people who suffer from this still. But in America, we, we've got our hand sanitizer, and this kind of stuff doesn't hit us the same way it hits the world. Let me tell you a modern-day application story. Beth Moore, who's a very celebrated Christian and author and all these other things, she was in a third-world country traveling. And she was fired up because she goes, ooh, <coughs> there's a leper colony, and I'm going to go visit it, and I'm going to bless these people, and I'm going to love them like Jesus did. I'm going to be there for them, and it's going to be amazing. And she gets to the door of this leper colony, and the smell pierces the air. See, because we read about it in the Bible and it sounds bad, right? But, but it's nothing compared to what it's like in real life. The smell of rotting flesh. The sound of people calling out to one another behind this enclosed encampment. The social stigma. You never got to kiss your kids goodbye. You were sent to the colony. You couldn't be around people anymore. You couldn't affect, infect people. You were sequestered and hidden away from the world. When you see people on the road, you have to call out from a distance so they don't come towards you. The emotional ramifications of a life segregated from anyone who wasn't sick and dying. Can you imagine what it's like to be surrounded by the walking dead? Beth Moore never went into the colony. She, she couldn't bring herself to do it. Two or three times she walked by the gate. Every time, so sick in her body, she, she, she had to leave. She never went in. I, I am so glad she tells that story. So glad. Because if it, if it ended differently, we'd go, good job, Beth. You're just such a little saint. But no, this is reality. We can't imagine what it was like. So, so these lepers, they call out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go, 
show yourselves to the priests. Okay, why does he say this? Priests in this day had a, um, a, a, a sort of a health duty to the community. When a person had leprosy, there was religious stigmas to it, okay? And so a lot of times for a person who may have been healed, they had to clear themselves, get a, like a, a clearance from a priest that said, okay, they have been healed, they can re-enter our society, and they can be part of things again. They're no longer infectious. So Jesus sends them to the priest. Now, here's the interesting thing. He doesn't heal them right then. He just says, okay, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Jesus says, go, so, go show yourselves to the priest. They look down. Some of them are still missing fingers. Some of them, their you know, arms are barely hanging on. They go, well, okay then. On the way, they get healed. There's 10 of them. And the story ends this way. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice, which, by the way, he was stuck on that volume. We don't know how many years he was a leper, but he was so used to going, ah, stay away from me, I'm unclean, okay, I'm sorry, I'm going back to the calling, leave me alone, don't throw rocks at me, I'm sorry. Well, of course he gets healed. What do you think he does? Oh my gosh, thank you, Lord. He doesn't have any other volume. And he comes, he praises God in a loud voice, he throws himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him, and here's the footnote. He was a Samaritan, not even one of Jesus' people, not from the same ilk as Jesus. And Jesus goes, were not all 10 of you cleansed? By the way, he knows the answer. Okay, he's Jesus. He knows what all 10 of them were. It's rhetorical. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Which, by the way, means he then took the healing to a whole new level. There's a whole different thing to that language, what Jesus did there. We can't visit it today, but what we can say is, wow, one out of 10 people, folks. I'm driving with my wife, and this happens all the time. Somebody almost cuts me off, and you know what I do? I'm a good Christian, and I'm a pastor in the community, so I can't flip the bird. This is what I do. <laughs> this is what I do. I go, oh, it's okay. You're good. This is what they do. <laughs> Give me this look like, who cares what you think? Do you know what my reaction is? Oh, I'm not going to be nice to people anymore. Nobody appreciates it. You matter, imagine if Jesus did that. Oh, well, I'm not healing anyone anymore because they obviously don't appreciate it. Sometimes I'll hold the door for people. Nothing. I'm always like, okay, you don't have to smile. I don't say it out loud, but... Okay, so here's, here's the deal, you guys. <laughs> Gratitude. Gratitude. This one, this one person, and he's not even... He's not even a Jew. He's not even one of Jesus' people. So one person has gratitude and returns to show Jesus thanks. That's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. I want to be that one guy. I don't want to be King Hezekiah. That when God has given me what he's given me, I ask for more and I'm not grateful. I don't want entitlement in my life. I don't want to look back on what I used to get to do before I cared about morals and go, ah, that wasn't so bad. I can go back there. I don't want that. I want to be grateful for the sacrifice Jesus gave me on the cross. I want to be grateful for that. And then last and least, uh, last but not least, when God has downright blessed my socks off, healed me of something, or taken care of me in a way that no one else could, I want to be the one who returns to the feet of Jesus, and I want to give him praise with my lips, and I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to God. That's why I started this sermon today, just giving you guys a little bit of honor a little bit of thanks, because guys, pain, 
misfortune, trouble, those things are always going to be part of our lives. We, we cannot extricate ourselves from, from the difficulties of the world, but we can remedy them with an attitude of thankfulness.